The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox. I am your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Krista Bremer, author of My Accidental Jihad, A Love Story. Krista has published in O, the Oprah magazine, and she also has been featured in the PBS series Arab American Stories. My Accidental Jihad has been described as a refreshing and candid story about Krista and her husband, Ismail's, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but she'll tell me, bicultural marriage and their commitment to each other without forsaking their identities. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Krista. Thank you so much for having me. How do I pronounce your husband's name? His name is pronounced Ismail. You're doing great. Okay, Ismail. Okay, I've got it. Well, we're talking about a bicultural marriage. This is what the book is all about. So I guess my first question, Krista, is, well, what is a bicultural marriage, and why is it so different than any other marriage? Well, that's a great question. So let me tell you a a little bit about myself. I was raised in Southern California by uh, parents who had a healthy skepticism about organized religion, Um, I had exposure to some wonderful feminist ideas. I was an avid surfer and an aspiring journalist, and I had a pretty clear sense of the trajectory that my life would take. And then, while I was in graduate school, I met an older Libyan Muslim man, and he and I began to grow close. And I found myself in a somewhat terrifying position because on one hand, I was happier with this man than I had ever been in, in my life with anyone else. And on the other hand, he was older and darker and poorer and more foreign than the husband I had imagined myself. Krista, what uh, was the attraction? Have, I mean, can you remember, like, is, was it a chemistry, or is it something <laughs> like, well, here's somebody you said. I mean, he was exactly the opposite of what you had pictured would be your partner for life. And so wh- wh- where did that come from, that attraction, that connection? I, I can't explain it. I think it's really a mystery who we fall in love with. I, I do recall vividly the first time that he held my hand. And I recall that his touch, uh, you know, in, in a very gentle way, when we were simply holding hands, his touch conveyed something powerful to me. It felt like coming home. And, and beyond that, I, I really couldn't, couldn't describe it. But So I wrote this book about our efforts to reconcile our radically different backgrounds and to negotiate our differences for the sake of our family. So it's a book about a bicultural marriage, and 
I honestly believe that every marriage is bicultural because it seems to me that whether we marry someone from the other side of the world or marry someone from our same small town, we still arrive into marriage with very different notions about home and family and children and romance, and we have to negotiate these differences. And it seems to me, too, that we eventually arrive at a place where this mate that we have chosen seems impossibly foreign to us. And we I would agree learn- with you, and I think that, one, that it is true that we all, just by the fact of marrying somebody from a different family with different parents growing up mm-hmm. in a different environment makes it you know, two different groups of people trying to get together. But say in your situation, what... Yours was everything. He was old. How much older is your husband than you are? He's 15 years older than I am. So there was the age difference, the cultural Mm -hmm. difference, religious difference. You have a whole, you probably could have a checklist of major differences. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But maybe there's just one difference in each marriage that becomes the overriding factor that prevents people from getting along. It's not necessarily, you know, how many there are, but how important each one is. Um, so, you know, as you say, each marriage probably is bicultural. Um, so, you, but there was something you said. I mean, you held hands and there was just this, this I use the word chemistry. I don't know if that's the right word. I, I but think, yeah, I think, I think that's a good word. And, and I also think that regardless of the nature of the differences, I think that the, the work that is required is the same. And in many ways, I wrote this book in order to claim my experience as a love story because I, I found myself in a position in this relationship where I was, I was in an intimate relationship that was extremely gratifying and enriching, and yet it looked nothing like I thought love was supposed to look like. And I realized that my whole life I had been collecting ideas about what love should be. And those came from songs and movies and advertisements. And I came to feel as if there were many stories about love that were not only untrue, but that also cause us suffering. What was when, love supposed to be? I mean, you said you obviously you felt very clearly you had this picture in your mind, and here you are with the older gentleman from a different culture, and you're, I guess you're saying, well, this doesn't fit my idea of love. What specifically was your idea of love? Well, I think, I, I think when I was younger, I had a naive idea about happily ever after and about meeting someone and knowing, you know, having a moment of absolute clarity that this was the right person for me. And my experience has been very different from both of those stories. So I find that with marriage, marriage, in my experience, has required me to endure ambivalence and uncertainty at times, and also that there is no such thing as happily ever after, that love actually requires us to work hard every day in order to keep it, keep it alive. But the rewards of that work are tremendous. And, and that's where the title, My Accidental Jihad, came in. Because 
I, I knew I knew from my husband that the word jihad meant struggle in Arabic. And I also knew that the Prophet Muhammad taught that the greatest struggle of our whole lives or the greatest jihad of our lives is the one that takes place in our hearts. It's the struggle to overcome our lower impulses and our egos, you know, to do battle with our selfishness and pettiness and intolerance and try to pry our hearts open a little wider every single day for the sake of our relationships and our communities and for humanity. But and and that, to me, that to me captures the work of marriage and family. And all these words are kind of sticking out like work and, and working hard and struggle and, you know, jihad is a struggle. It kind of, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, do I want to get married? I mean, would I want to get married? Because I don't want to struggle and I don't want to go through this and there should be some spontaneity and at some point it should become easier. And, and I guess that's my question to you. Does it at some point become easier? Because you have all of these areas that, wow, you know, you just, I would assume um, you didn't have a lot of understanding. I mean, you, your families are different. His families are different. I mean, you're talking about an impoverished Libyan village and your middle-class secular family. Just start with that. Um, how did you handle, I mean, let's talk about your, your family. What was their response? Um, well, you know, the first, the first part of your question actually is interesting to me, which is, does it become easier? And, and I think it actually does become easier. I, I think that the work is lifelong, but I think that if we earnestly strive to work with our egos, I think we can become more humble and more generous and more tolerant, and that makes our lives easier because we find ourselves less in direct conflict over petty things. But my experience has also been that the work doesn't go away. <laughs> um, and and when I, I would say that when I first met Ismail, my family was probably... Concerned, I think they were surprised that they too had imagined something very different for me. But I also think, you know, we've been together for 15 years now, and I think they have come to see how much I have thrived in this relationship. That it's allowed me to really blossom in in many different ways, professionally and personally and spiritually. And so I, I think at this point. They, they are grateful for the relationship and they, they are grateful that I have something that's, that's so healthy for me. Well, yes, you, you have grown in the relationship, but then you're also saying in the process of growing in the relationship, you've grown as a person in terms of family, work, just in terms of your connection, I guess, with the universe because it sounds like you've really evolved. But, Krista, were there any or was there any point where you thought, our differences are just too much. Uh, this is too much for me. This is overwhelming. I mean, I think in any marriage, people or couples often get into that situation, but in yours in particular, and any one area where you really had to work where you thought, I'm not sure I can do this? You know, I, I, I would have to honestly say that those moments, uh, those moments have happened countless times. Like that, that, what you just said captures my state of mind when I am most exasperated in conflict with my husband, that a part of me will say, this is impossible. I cannot do this. Um, 
But those moments are moments of heated emotion, and, and they evaporate. You know, they're, they're very ephemeral. Um, and in terms of the, the greatest difficulties, it's really interesting because people often focus on our religious differences. But my experience has been that those are actually easy to navigate because my husband's understanding of Islam gives him a real strong commitment to social justice and to community and to humility, and those are values that I can easily connect with, and they're actually values that make me feel at home. And I've found that the more difficult differences to navigate have to do with class. So my husband was raised really poor, and I was raised middle class. And the daily negotiations around that can be really challenging. For example, one has to decide how long to drive a car before purchasing a new one. And I think if you asked my husband that question, he would probably say something like 30 years. <laughs> so, you know, or, or we have two children and we have to decide how many pairs of shoes does a child need. And my husband's experience would lead him to say one. And I've convinced him that that's unrealistic for the world we're living in. But then we still have to negotiate. It's okay, we're, we're not going to limit our children to one pair of shoes, but nor will we give them ten pairs of shoes. So you're saying or, that class differences stand out. I mean, differences, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because, uh, you know, kind of sociology 101, the differences, are, you know, money, class, uh, profession, education, and you put class at the top of the list because there are class differences. Even, and in America, we don't like to talk about those differences, but they're very clearly there. And I think that that happens even not necessarily, I mean, in, ter- I mean, your case where your husband is from, from a different country, but just within the context of people coming from the same town, uh, yeah. and yeah, yeah. experiencing class differences. Yeah. It's, it's, it's actually, it, it fascinates me. The, the longer I know him, the more I appreciate the way class has shaped each of us. And I've really noticed uh, people who grow up poor, and, and I'm talking in his case very poor. I mean, his family received UN handouts, and, and several of his siblings died in infancy or early childhood. And I've seen that people who grow up poor have a very different sense of community and interdependence. So they may not have money in the bank, but their investment is in their relationships with one another. And so there's a much stronger impulse uh, to participate in community. And, And another difference is when you grow up middle class, I grew up with all sorts of guidelines in terms of how I eat at the table, what kind of manners I should use in different contexts, um, appropriate subjects to discuss in public, things like that. And, and my husband was not burdened with those types of protocols. And I wonder if it's because, you know, when you're really poor, there are, there, you know, the, there's not such a pressure to keep up appearances. What are the positives of growing up in middle class and upper middle class? Well, I think that actually everything, you know, I recently heard someone ask my husband what he liked best about America, and he said 
Krista, my wife, is what I like best about America. And I think it goes beyond, you know, just his love for me, but I think it goes to the kind of idealism and inquisitive spirit and adventurous that, you know, the spirit of adventure that is uniquely American. And I think also middle class. I mean, I think a a middle-class upbringing allows us enough comfort to really dream and take chances. And I think that it's part of what's allowed me to take the journey I've taken. I think a middle-class American would be most suited, for example, to, to take the leap that I've taken to embrace another culture and try something totally different and have enough of an open mind and heart to do that. You know, the point you made, and, I, and I've observed this myself, and I just want to bring it up again because I think it's important, where you said that, you know, the, the kind of background, the poor background that he came from, one of the pluses was that sense of connection with other people. There was like people thrive on those connections, whereas sometimes when you get up into the middle class or upper middle class, you, you lose those kinds of connections. And I experienced that when I was volunteering at Ronald McDonald House and was always amazed by that. I would see people who really had no money, their children were sick, uh, just in dire straits, and yet there was they, the, the, they would help each other. They would be cooking for each other and giving each other, you know, providing solace. And I would think, wow. And I related that to just what you're talking about, um, that kind of like real feeling of togetherness with, with other people that sometimes you don't see as you kind of get into middle class and, and manners and what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. So I kind of want to, I think that's a good point. Yeah, it, 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 it is very interesting. And I, I really have come to understand through my husband the ways that our affluence isolates us. It, it really does seem that in in many ways the more resources we have, the more individualistic we can become. And, and those investments through relationship are really investments that pay off tremendously. You know, they, they may pay off at a greater rate than the stock market. <laughs> and, well, you're and when, right. I, when our, I our investments get larger, our houses get bigger, they separate us from other people, our lawns right. get bigger, that's another real physical barriers, you know, external as well as internal barriers. I want to ask you about feminism, though, because, you know, I, as you said and you talk about in the book, too, you had your own uncomfortable prejudices concerning um, Muslim religion, and I think that if I were honest, I would say that I do, too, and feminism would be one of them. I would want to know, could you kind of enlighten us about that and your husband's perspective and how that fits into your relationship? Sure, you were, sure. Or you talk about you were a feminist or you are a feminist. Right, right. Well, one thing that's really interesting is that a, a common misconception about Muslim men is that they're controlling. And I, I, even among good friends of mine, people express concern early in the relationship that my husband might try to control me or that he would pressure me to convert to his faith. And I can honestly say that I have never experienced anything remotely close to that. And his understanding of Islam is that many paths lead to God and that there can be no coercion whatsoever in religion. So throughout our relationship, he has respected my spiritual practices completely. And 
And to the point of feminism, when, when I was in college, I was exposed to feminism, and I, I really felt like I was transformed by what it had to offer. It taught me about strength and ambition and having a voice and having a sense of autonomy, and, and those gifts have shaped my life without a doubt. Through what my death? husband... Sorry? No, go ahead. Well, through my husband, I have come to appreciate also the value of surrender. So Islam means surrender. And before I met my husband, I only understood surrender in terms of defeat or passivity. I had no other way to begin to think about it. And, and yet, over the course of my marriage and as I have gotten older, I've really come to appreciate that there's no way to get through marriage or even life in general without learning to gracefully surrender to circumstances that are beyond our control. And my husband has an ability to do this that he has cultivated through his faith over a lifetime. And, and I really admire that. And, and so I'm learning to incorporate more surrender into my life. And, and I'm not trading those ideas for feminism. I think people tend to think in a very dualistic way sometimes, and they think that I'm rejecting feminism in favor for surrender, and that's absolutely not true. Um, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald once said that the, the sign of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold contradictory ideas at once, and I would say that's the case here. I'm, I'm trying to just expand my mind and heart to allow it to include all of these concepts in order to just bring myself into balance as a human being. Well, I think one of the things that allows one to do that, of course, is, well, experience and education. And I'm making the assumption that you and your husband have similar experience or similar backgrounds in terms of education. Mm. He, my husband has a fascinating story because I think I mentioned that both of his parents are illiterate and he went on to get a doctorate in the United States. So he has really gone about as far as possible from his background. And, and I, have, I have a graduate degree. I have a master's in journalism. So he has a Ph.D., you have a master's. I think that education brings people together and also can separate them, as you described, perhaps, you know, the distance between him and his parents um, yeah. probably widens, yeah. the gap widens um, as you two get closer. What about the children? Because how do, you know, how do the, you have two children? That's right. I have a 13-year-old daughter and an 8-year-old son. Now, they're growing up in this bicultural family. Right. How, so to, is there, a, you know, an impact that it has on them that would be very different than your typical... Uh, middle-class kid in the suburbs whose parents, uh, you know, grew up together? I think that it, it both enriches them and creates challenges for them, for sure. And, you know, I see, for example, I have, my daughter's in middle school now, and I have seen her struggle with trying to understand her own identity. You know, she came home not long ago and announced at the dinner table that she was African-American. And 
<laughs> you know, we, we sort of laughed because she does not fit the image that one might have in mind with those words, and yet she is African and she is American. And, and I think she feels sometimes a sense of otherness. You know, she knows that she's not entirely white. She's not, you know, a, a white American. She's something that is a little different from that. But I also think that uh, her background gives her an opportunity to have a cultural fluency, which could really serve her. So I see, for example, that even at 13, she's very comfortable at the beach in an environment where everyone is wearing bikinis. That feels natural and easy to her. And she's also comfortable going to a Muslim gathering and putting a scarf over her head for the prayer. If, you know, and, and that is not a problem for her either. She can navigate these different worlds without feeling alienated or judgmental of either one. And I think if she can hold on to that, that will really serve her in her life. Yeah, I agree. And I wonder what's the response of her classmates, her girlfriends and, and boyfriends. Are, are they uh, embracing or do, or, or do is she has experienced any bullying or any kind of feeling like out of the picture kind of stuff or not? It doesn't sound like it. You know, when she was younger, there was a time when I felt she was bullied for her difference. And there was a time when she would go to school and the other kids would make fun of her lunches. And her, um, you know, her father loves to cook and he would sometimes pack her these leftovers, something like a spicy couscous. And, And the other kids at the table would say, ew, gross, you know, that food stinks or something like that. And, and I've come to understand, I think that's just kids being kids because now my son, you know, can bring a tuna sandwich to school and other kids will say the same thing. I think the drive toward conformity is so strong uh, throughout our lives, actually. I think that people are, we're pack animals and there's something within us that wants so desperately to belong to a pack. Um, so I, I think that, you know, that's something that both of my kids have had to navigate. Well, couscous is in style now, so we've evolved. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I agree with you, and I think ambivalence is difficult, and, and, and we don't seem to like to tolerate ambivalence, which probably, you know, comes up in a lot of situations for your uh, for both your kids, but now we've been talking about your daughter. What about your son? Is he? Are his issues the same? Um, here's something I notice about my son that I find interesting. I think that he, um, in many ways, is very much like his father. He's very emotionally expressive and very passionate. And his dad cries on a regular basis. Um, you know, so his dad has his emotions very cr- close to the surface. He's passionate with both his joy and his sadness. And my son is the same way. And I sometimes worry for him because I feel that the American sense of masculinity has narrower pr- boundaries than the Middle Eastern one. So it well, allows... So your, your kids are, are have... Kind of, as I hear you say, are getting the best of both. You know, I have to, we are, my next guest is here, so we have to say goodbye, but I'm so fascinated with your story, so, and I want other people, obviously, to, to be privy to it, so my accidental jihad, you can go online, you can buy it online, bookstores everywhere, 
and you and I maybe sometime can conti- you know continue with this discussion. Krista Bremer, my accidental Gia, thank you so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Yeah, you have a great story. Thanks a lot. We are, I have to take a break now. We're, uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. There is a species that remains undiscovered by modern science. This species is known by many names, but most commonly known as Bigfoot. Join Todd Standing and Dr. Jeff Meldrum for Bigfoot North, a program that sets out to uncover the species that has eluded modern science, but that does truly exist. Expert and celebrity guests will be on hand to discuss both the scientific evidence and conclusive fact of the species on this planet. Bigfoot North airs live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me next is Dr. Lauren Stryker, MD, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, and uh, she's also a recurrent guest on the Dr. Oz Show, Good Morning America, and the Today Show. Her new book is Love, Sex, Again, A Gynecologist Finally Fixes the Issues That Are Sabotaging Your Sex Life. Uh, Welcome to the show, Doctor. Nice to have you on this morning. Well, thank you for having me. Well, sex is always a topic that we say we like to talk about, but I'm not sure that we do, and especially when it becomes personal. So um, I, it's, I think, and obviously, uh, having read your book, it's important for us to be able to discuss sex as women, and your specialty is not necessarily talking or working with people in terms of their relationship and how that affects their sex life or women, but their, the actual physical, the physical. and yeah, exactly. medical and hormonal reasons for not having good sex. So exactly, because okay. as you know, there are so many books out there about broken relationships, and there's good books about helping with those broken relationships. But if you don't have a broken relationship, but you have a broken vagina, it doesn't matter how great your relationship is. If sex is painful or not pleasurable, you're not going to do it. 
And so the problem that we have, of course, is that when women go to their doctor, when they have these conversations or they read in a woman's magazine about how to fix your sex life and it always has suggestions like, you know, do something different or date night or take a bubble bath. And those are all well and good if the issue is just de-stressing and working on your relationship. But for 40% of women uh, across the board that have sexual issues and 60% of women in the post-menopause range, they have something physically, hormonally, or medically wrong that's going to sabotage their sex life, and all the bubble baths and dates in the world aren't going to fix it. But one of the problems that I find or I have found over the years is it's not just women who are afraid to necessarily even talk about their vaginas or even say the word vagina, but I have found that gynecologists themselves never bring that up that's either. Right. That's right, and the studies are quite clear on that, that um, women, even if they do bring it up, which is rare, it takes them about two years to do it, doctors are terrible at, at uh, asking about it. Gynecologists are a little bit better than other doctors, but still, as across the board, doctors don't ask about it. And one of the things that this is, is interesting is that the reason is that, that's given all the time is, well, they're embarrassed. And they're not embarrassed. That's not why they don't ask. The reason they don't ask is because they really don't have the information to help someone. This isn't something that, that you learn in medical school. It's not even something you learn during a residency. Most women who go to their OBGYN, this is someone who spends 80% of their time delivering babies and doing pap smears and maybe doing surgery. But this isn't someone who really is an expert in sexual health. So what happens is if the conversation does even happen and the woman says, oh, sex hurts, and her doctor may just you know, mumble something like try lubricant and then change the subject because they're not necessarily informed on all the things that can't help. And, and quite frankly, that's why I wrote the book because... You know, I, I really am of the mind that women need to be empowered with information so that they can advocate for themselves. You can't wait for a doctor to tell you what to do. And at the end of the book, one of the things I say is you now know more about this than your doctor does. And so that empowers women to go in and, and say to their doctor, you know, I, I read this book and I believe that I have this problem and this is what I need to fix it as opposed to going to your doctor and saying, help me, because chances are they won't. Well, shouldn't the doctors be reading your book as well as the women? I, yes. Yes. Both. I yes. think it's for both. Yes, <laughs> and I hope they it. do. And I was actually just at the big gynecologic uh, conference last week, and, um, and, I, and I was selling my books there, and there were many, many doctors who, who were purchasing books for their own knowledge and also to know if it was something they wanted to recommend to their patients. Yeah, and do you find, doctor, that uh, there's a difference between the younger doctors and, and, and perhaps the older doctors? in terms of their information or their ability to talk about these kinds of issues you with know, their patients. It's, it's interesting. What, what really seems to matter more than anything is where someone trained. There are certain medical centers that have sexual health clinics and that the residents get a great deal of training in terms of knowing how to address these issues. So it's not so much the, the age of the doctor as it is their personal interest in it and, and then, you know, whatever information they got along the way. But the other so thing what that, that schools, happens to is... What medical is, schools specifically are 
the ones that will train doctors in in the way that we're talking about, you know, that have the information that's in your book? I mean, there, like, there are a number of sexual health clinics, and in fact, one of the things I talk about in my book is how do you find an expert? And uh, one of the ways to find an expert is to go to a major medical center and say, do you have a sexual health clinic? So, for example, Stanford uh, has a very good sexual health clinic. Michigan, University of Michigan does, Indiana University. Uh, it really depends where you are. In Chicago, I mean, here I am. I'm in Chicago, big city. We don't have a whole lot going on here. I'm going to be starting a sexual health clinic at Northwestern, but other than one relatively small clinic at University of Chicago for women specifically who've had issues after cancer, there really isn't any help. And I'm the one that gives the lecture to the medical students, so I know that they only get one, and that's just not enough. Okay, because moving east, what about the east coast? East Coast, it, it, again, it depends where you are. You know, in New York, you definitely have some very good sexual health clinics and some sexual health uh, experts, but as you get into the smaller towns and the smaller communities, it's just not going to happen. And so sometimes you do need to travel if you have a, a you know, really severe problem to find someone who can help you. But what I'm hoping is that the information that I give women in the book will uh, be such that they can go to their own doctor and say, look, you know, this is what's going on. I'm having this problem. I read this book. I need a referral to a pelvic floor physical therapist, or this is a prescription that I think would help me. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, doctors want to help their patients. And no doctor is going to, um, you know, decline trying to get someone the help that, that she needs. And, of course, I'm trying to get out there and, and educate not only women, but, but doctors as well. I give lectures all over the country uh, to doctors. Well, Dr. Stryker, you're talking about, you say in your book, what you want to do is you can uh, help women to fix their vaginas, have healthy vaginas. What does a healthy vagina look like? <laughs> and I'm thinking, I walked out, you know, I go to any public place. I can be at an airport or a bus station or a train station, and I'm looking at Americans in general and thinking healthy vagina. Most women don't look healthy overall. I mean, That's right. they're overweight and obese, so how can you have a healthy sex life, a healthy vagina, uh, you, you know, your hormones, uh, you know, functioning properly when we're such an unhealthy society. Well, you're absolutely correct. And, and obesity is, is an interesting phenomenon because we find that women who are obese also tend to have a weak pelvic floor. And that, only, that also impacts not only on sexuality but on bladder control. And that's part of pelvic health, if you will, which goes a little bit beyond the vagina. But uh, you know, certainly there are medical conditions that can get in the way of a healthy vagina. Women who have diabetes uh, very often don't have normal blood flow, or women who have heart disease don't have normal blood flow. Certainly hormonal issues can cause the tissue to be thin and dry. And uh, the pH, which is very important in terms of the acid-base balance to make sure that someone doesn't get infection or irritation, there are a lot of things that can throw that off. And women who chronically have odor and irritation, it's not because they're not showering, it's not because they're not clean, it's because the balance has been thrown off vaginally. And these are all things that impact not only on just general vaginal health, but on the ability to have pleasurable sex. So if I were to come into your office and my chief complaint was, you know, I'm in, as you describe it, in vaginal agony and <laughs> your goal is to turn it into vaginal ecstasy, what would you ask me? What would you do? What would be the protocol? Well, the first thing I would do after talking to you is do a very specific targeted exam, uh, which goes beyond what the gynecologist usually does. So first I look at the tissue on the outside of the vagina, the vulva, to see if it looks dry, to see if it looks irritated, to make sure there's no rashes or anything that shouldn't be there. And I then actually measure 
measure the pH in the vagina, which is just taking a little piece of paper, pH paper, to see if it's in the, um, in the right range. And then I put a speculum in just like you're used to for a pap smear, but I'm not concentrating on the cervix as much as I am the vaginal walls because normally the vaginal walls in a healthy vagina that has the normal hormones, the, there's going to be a, lot, a deep, rich pink color and there's going to be nice folds and there's going to be normal lubrication. And usually a woman who's having vaginal agony, it looks pretty different. I mean, we're looking at pale, thin, no wrinkles, um, and sometimes you even put the speculum in and it's horribly painful and they bleed. So it's really not difficult to evaluate to see what's going on. Uh, and, and that also is going to tell me what, what to do to fix it, you know, because certainly there's a wide range. There's a big difference between a woman who's a little dry and has a little discomfort and she just needs the right lubricant, which is just going to make things more slippery, versus someone who's going to need a prescription product to actually change the thinness and dryness of the vaginal wall. But it's all fixable. There's solutions for all of this. And I think as a gynecologist, that's what's been so frustrating and was you know, part of my incentive to write the book because I would see so many women who'd gone to three, four, five doctors who weren't able to help them or just said, well, this is part of aging, which is incredibly offensive. No guy would be told at age 50 if he wasn't sexually functional, well, this is just a normal part of aging. And yet women are told this every day. And they're still told that. I mean, it seems to me we've been sort of working on that issue for the past 30 years, but the same thing. You know, there's this kind of gender difference. I mean, right. exactly, yeah, once you go through menopause, well, what would you expect? I mean, you know, that's this, right. this, this that's is right. the way it is. And, and the other gender issue difference that's, that's striking to me is if a guy is not in a partnered relationship, if he's not married, they, the doctor will still talk about sexual issues. If a woman is not partnered, if she's single, you, know, you talk about doctors not asking. That's when they really don't ask because they just assume that if a woman doesn't have a partner that she's not sexual. So these women really get marginalized uh, medically and then they feel uncomfortable bringing it up themselves. So no one's yes. really out there helping them. So the patient themselves has to take on a lot of responsibility is what you're saying, really. That's right. I mean, and, you have to how- <laughs> and, and so what I do is I, and I give you a script, essentially, in the book. And it's, you know, it's, the chapter is called uh, How to Find a Clinician Who Will Listen and then How to Talk Vagina to Your Doctor. And what I find is very helpful for women is to write down their concerns because a lot of women just have a hard time spitting it out. And you just walk in and right off the bat, you say to your doctor, I have some very specific issues that I would like to discuss today, and I've written them down. And you hand your doctor a list. And number one on the list might be I have painful intercourse or um, I'm no longer able to have an orgasm or whatever it is that your issue is. If you write it down, it just makes it easier and it also lets your doctor know that this is something important, that this is not just a, oh, by the way, that this is the reason for your visit. And hopefully your doctor will be able to address the issue. Yeah, but it's something you've thought about very carefully and you've taken the time mm-hmm. to go through it and write it down. What about, and just, I'm curious about this because I've been asked this, uh, girlfriends talk about this, female Viagra. What is that? Yeah, it's really a, um, not the correct terminology because what we're really talking about is a prescription drug that's going to help a woman sexually. Now, when you look at Viagra, that's specifically to increase blood flow, which is to help erectile dysfunction. Well, that's not the problem that women have. So when they talk about the female Viagra, what they're really talking about are drugs that are going to help with libido, not so much blood flow. And right now, there are no drugs that have been FDA approved for that purpose, which is very frustrating because there are 25 drugs that are FDA approved for male sexual function, and there are zero drugs 
that are approved for uh, help with, with libido. And in fact, the only drugs that have been approved are for vaginal lubrication. But there's a drug that's, that's coming up uh, called flibanserin, which you may have heard about. And flibanserin has been in the news quite a bit because this is a drug, it's a pill, which is specifically for libido in women. And it works at the level of the brain. You know, it actually increases the neurotransmitters that are going to have, uh, that are going to increase sexual thoughts. And flibanserin went in front of the FDA, and everyone thought in our community that, that the FDA was going to approve it because all of the clinical trials were very positive. It was safe. It did seem to make a difference. And everyone was very surprised when flibanserin was not approved by the FDA a couple of months ago. So there's been actually almost a political uprising about it with women saying, wait a minute, you know, there were like 400 guys in the Viagra trial and there were 11,000 women in the flibanserin trial and that once again, women's sexual health is getting marginalized. So flibanserin is going back in front of the FDA this fall. And we are optimistically uh, thinking that, that this time the FDA is going to approve it. But um, having said that, and I think flibanserin is going to be a valuable drug and a useful drug, it's not like you give flibanserin to women and they're going to be ripping their clothes off and having fabulous sex because libido is very complex. And while certainly neurotransmitters are one piece of it, you also have to look at relationship issues, stress issues, um, medications that someone might be on that, that could squash their libido. So it would be nice if there was a pill that you could just give women that would make things wonderful, but I think that we have to, you know, really spend a little bit more time. We have to be realistic. But it's, yeah, that, and then testosterone is the other um, libido enhancer for women because, of course, um, not only men but women require testosterone as well, and testosterone was another one that did not get FDA approved, and despite a lot of trials that showed that it worked and that it was safe, so, so can um, we back up? What is the reason for that? Is it because that men are doing the research or they're on the committee for the approvals? Or why is it that there, that there aren't any libido yeah. enhancers for women now, one, today? One of the reasons is, is the way that the trials are designed. So, for example, with uh, phlebanserin and testosterone, what they were looking at in the trial was how many satisfying sexual experiences a woman had. Well, that's a different question than how many sexual thoughts she had. And libido very much is about sexual thoughts. So that was one piece of it. Um, you know, the other piece is, is that it is very, very expensive to do these trials. And with testosterone, two companies actually went through these trials and were turned down by the FDA and they just said enough already. We're not going to spend another $10 million trying to get this drug approved. So they just give up. And I think people don't really appreciate how much time and how much money it takes to get a drug approved. And in fact, from the time the drug is developed until it gets to market is usually between 10 and 20 years, uh, depending on if it gets through the FDA first pass or not. So testosterone has been around for women. Um, you know, they've been trying to get it out there for at least 10 to 15 years, and now no one is... Is, is making it anymore. So I prescribe it. I just prescribe the stuff that's intended for the guys and I give it to the women. And an interesting statistic is about 30% of testosterone that is prescribed for men is actually used by their wives. That's a, uh, that is a statistic I was not aware of. Yeah. And I don't think most people are. That's very interesting. Yeah. When you talk about drugs and it takes, what did you say, 10 to 15 years to get Twenty, you know, yeah, or up to twenty years to get it on the market. Right. We have plenty of drugs on the market, though. Where I mean, we pop pills all the time as a as a culture, right. as a society, right? So, what about some of these drugs that actually have the opposite effect? What I mean, I'm sure 
you know, many women take a lot of medication and that prevents them from uh, having a good libido or that's for right. enhancing. So are there well, some that are very... At the top of the list, of course, are antidepressants. And I think, you know, anyone who's taken an antidepressant is made aware that there's a chance that they may have problems with libido. And again, it comes down to these neurotransmitters, dopamine and serotonin, uh, because these are the neurotransmitters that are going to impact on depression, but they're also going to impact on libido. So when you are trying to help alleviate someone's depression, you are going to decrease their dopamine, but you need high dopamine to, to have a good sex drive. So, so that's a challenge. The other drug, which is quite common that can have a profound effect, is um, birth control pills. We know that for most women, birth control pills do not impact on uh, libido or in a negative way, but they're definitely are a very clear group of women, and they know who they are, that when they take a birth control pill, their libido just completely disappears. And we see this even more with some of the newer low-dose pills. We see it in women who start birth control pills at a very young age. So, And some of these women not only have a decrease in libido, but they actually have tissue changes. They have vaginal dryness. And, and here, you know, you're looking at someone who's like, 25 years old and obviously is going to be bursting with hormones and yet she's having vaginal dryness as if she's a menopause woman and that is because she is in this, in this small group, you know, we're looking at 2 to 3% of women on birth control pills who have this side effect, but it is a real phenomenon and something that people need to be aware of because the only way they're going to make it go away is to stop taking their pill. So what do you do in those cases? They seem, I mean, both of those examples seem like a catch-22. If you're yeah. taking antidepressants and then you're, you don't have a good libido, then you get more depressed because you don't have sex. That's so, right. I mean, with, like a, now, with the antidepressants, and, and, and I always say this is not a do-it-yourself project, of course, um, sometimes you can alter the dose. Sometimes you can change to a different antidepressant. Sometimes we add in a second drug, which will counteract the libido effect. With, um, with birth control pills, we're looking at alternate methods of contraception. I'm a big fan of IUDs for, for any age woman, but it, you know, particularly for young women who are having issues um, with libido. And uh, it's, it's a matter of, again, recognizing what's the culprit because a lot of times women just, they don't have any idea why, why things are not the way they're supposed to be and they just continue on. And then, of course, we look at women who have more serious medical problems, you know, women who are recovering from cancer, um, the effects of chemotherapy and radiation, and many women go through menopause as a result of cancer treatments, and then we look at the impact of diabetes and heart disease. Uh, Doctor, can you get through, let's say, chemotherapy? I mean, I know, unfortunately, so many people who are on chemotherapy who have cancer, um, and it, it does destroy the good cells in your body as well That's as right. the bad, but what happens? Can you can you redeem your sex life after yeah. you have this Absolutely, and then I have um, a, a very large portion of the book is is devoted to women who have issues after chemotherapy because, you know, the good news, of course, is that women are surviving cancer. So, you know, yay, that's wonderful, we love that. But what happens then is they go to see their oncologist as they're in survivor mode, and the oncologist more times than not does not bring up their sexuality, and women are just like, they feel guilty. It's like, well, I don't want to complain about my sex life. This, you know, this person just saved my life. So this is just the way it's going to be. And we find that in some populations, up to 90% of women have sexual issues after they have survived cancer. So depending on you know, what the problem is, there are very, very specific fixes. I mean, even if we look at women after breast cancer with vaginal dryness and 
and pain, uh, first of all, these women can safely take a local vaginal estrogen, which is something that I explain in the book why it is safe to do, and most oncologists are totally on board with that. But even if you have a woman who says, I'm not comfortable taking an estrogen product or they've been told they can't, I also give non-hormonal solutions uh, because there, there are solutions for all of these issues. Well, is your your office must be packed. I mean, you've seen. <laughs> I have wonderful partners. We in my office, and the other the other point I always make is my office is a little bit unique in that we do not do obstetrics. We are an all woman gynecologic group, and we only do gynecology. And we are all certified menopause practitioners. And so because this is our focus, we're very comfortable with this and we do a lot of this. And that's one of the frustrating things is that a lot of women go to their obstetrician because that's who delivered their kids and that's just who they've always been going to. And they assume that this person is an expert and and they're not. So we are busy, um, but we also feel that and we are able to offer a level of expertise that a lot of women can't find. One of the things that I talk about is how do you find an expert and what makes an expert an expert. And one piece of advice I would give women who are after menopause is there's a wonderful organization called NAMS, the North American Menopause Society, and their website is menopause.org. And if you put in your zip code, um, then you will get a list of certified menopause practitioners in your area. And what that means is that more likely than not, these are the doctors that are going to have an interest, that are going to have an expertise, that are more likely to be able to help you than someone who is doing primarily obstetrics. I have one last question. We only have a couple minutes left, but I just want to know in terms of, and I don't know what the, uh, the differences in ter- male-female in your office, but do you think gynecologists really need to be women, women helping women, or do you think that, that, that men can relate to women and all, well, all the issues we've been talking about today on the show? I, mean, I, think, it, I think gender doesn't matter. I think that, matter. that what matters is expertise. And some of the best sexual health experts I know are men, and I know plenty of women uh, gynecologists who are completely clueless. But having said that, if a woman is uncomfortable talking to a man about these issues, well, that's important too, and then she needs to find a knowledgeable woman. But you know, just based on gender alone, some of the really most amazing sexual health experts I know are guys. That's interesting because I think I've maintained a certain prejudice and always seem to <laughs> gravitate towards a woman, to be honest with you. When it comes to gynecology, not necessarily, right. not a surgeon, uh, you know, and other specialties, but in that particular area, um, I think that's my comfort level. So you're saying it, but in and terms if that's of your comfort level, then you go with it. You know, yes, yeah, then you go with it, right. Okay, well, uh, do we? I want to just mention, obviously, your book again and our website that we can go to, too. You mentioned one website, menopause.com, menopause.org. Right, my website is drstriker.com, and then you can also go to my Facebook page, uh, slash drstriker, and then follow me on Twitter, at drstriker. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Great Thank show. you so much. Dr. Lauren Stryker, MD, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University, and... Uh, uh, you can go online, as we mentioned, and uh, you can research her book, Love, Sex, Again, a gynecological, a gynecological a gynecologist finally fixes the issues that are sabotaging your sex life. Thanks so much. We're going to um, say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. 
Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.